been a minute. It's been a week, in fact. A week of absence from the virtual airways by yours truly, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, here with the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Yes, we were off the virtual airways last week due to spring break. Yes, it was spring break for my two children, so they were home every day all last week. Uh, my wife, Ms. S, took some time off work, so she was home several of the days as well, making it treacherous going for um, amateur home podcast recording and a house full of other folk. But I am abandoned and alone once again, and I'm back with this, episode 36 of the podcast. So with that in mind, let's get started sensationalizing the everyday and bringing to you the tens of ones, yet more unnecessary Takes, tales, thoughts, ruminations from the exceedingly average life of me, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, here in Napa, California, here in the beautiful Northern California wine country, doing just about jack smack day in and day out, except for once a week, taking out about 30 to 40 minutes to talk to you, presuming that you exist. Uh, what's been going on, folks? Uh, we got some big news here. Um, in the last week, I guess this was just last week that it happened. Um, I got my first, uh, COVID-19 vaccination shot gimmick. Um, I will take this as a moment to plug both the end of our flagship show on the network, the Stuck at Home show. The Stuck at Home show has come to an end as we are no longer really stuck at home in any super significant way. But uh, IC Robots has ended that show and resumed his flagship podcasting with the new show. IC Robots is trying to get vaccinated show, which we are all hoping will have a short run as we hope our um, boss here at the network will um, receive his vaccination sooner than later. I got mine totally out of the blue. I was not expecting it. Um, I was watching people mysteriously getting vaccines right and left, but having no real compelling sociological reason to get one myself. I mean, other than wanting to get one, but you know, I'm not in a, in a class that would be at the head of the line. I had just resigned myself to, uh, waiting for a while for long gaming it. Um, but my wife, received uh, an email last week through her work that there was a local health clinic that was giving out shots and people at my wife's work were eligible to sign up for appointments. So she signed up for an appointment and she mentioned, oh, you should just go ahead and fill out um, one of their forms online for the heck of it, because even though you probably won't get an appointment, you'll at least be in the system. So when the time comes, it's just another avenue that may beckon to you for a shot. So I filled out my sad form with nothing really to recommend me for being uh, eligible for a vaccine. But I received an email the following morning before Ms. S headed out for her own appointment that this clinic was in fact opening opening the floodgates. Anyone 
who uh, received this email was welcome to show up between the hours of 10 and 3 to get a shot. Uh, they were they were asking anyone and everyone to come down. So come down I did. We both went over there. We both got our first shots uh, at the same time, first shots of the Pfizer vaccine, and then we both have an appointment to go back and get the second in a couple weeks. Uh, got the shot, didn't even feel the needle going into the arm. Um, arm got relatively sore and stiff um, the next day, uh, kind of equivalent, a little, little bit more, a little bit more than a flu shot, I guess, kind of more equivalent to when you get like a D-tap or some more um, vaccination type shot rather than the yearly flu shot. But it, it was, I think people talk about these side effects, like who cares, dude? <laughs> for a day, my arm was kind of sore. Um, but yeah, for a day, my arm was sore, as is the case with any, any kind of vaccination shot I've ever experienced. Um, I did get pretty tired. It was pretty tired, pretty hard to focus. Uh, just kind of no sold it and then went to bed early and was good to go. So, uh, when, when that, when I was going to say the, the, the reaper, but it's not really the, it's not really the reaper beckoning, but when, when the, the, the gods of medicine, uh, pull your number, just go ahead and do it. It's not a big deal and you will be all the better off for it down the road. Um, not that I really have any plans to really do much different than I'm doing now, but, uh, just be nice to not have to worry about that anymore. Um, meanwhile, uh, I wanted to give a shout out here uh, because we are a food podcast and I feel that we have not been talking about food at all of late. Uh, two quick food notes. First of all, having my morning uh, salmon and rice. Talked about this before. I think I've talked about this when calling in to the Icy Robots uh, at the time, the Stuck at Home show to talk about uh, what Gino Vega had for lunch yesterday. I before uh, revealed the fact that I, uh, for the majority of the weekdays for breakfast, will eat salmon and rice. That's my my go-to breakfast, salmon and rice. Uh, I have taken in middle age to, uh, when preparing my rice, um, I'll put soy sauce on the rice, I'll put some hot chili oil on the rice, but I've taken to putting various um, Japanese rice seasonings on the rice. I'm holding a, a jar of Japanese rice seasoning right here. Can you hear that? That's me shaking the, the rice seasoning. Um, this is a bit out of um, my, uh, uh, not comfort zone, because I'm perfectly comfortable with it, um, a bit out of my sphere of knowledge um, prior to adulthood, prior to middle age. I grew up um, eating rice with Chinese Americans, and one does not put this sort of seasoning. This is a specifically Japanese thing. Um, but the seasoning is usually um, different variations of dry seaweed and a few other gimmicks. But uh, So I, I'm sure generations of my uh, racist Chinese relatives who didn't like Japanese people are rolling over in their grave. Um, and in, uh, for those of us still alive, the anti-cultural appropriation folks might also be raising off alarm bells because I'm veering outside of my cultural sphere to try something different, but um, they're going to have to deal because by gosh, that is what makes, makes America great, isn't it? Just uh, mixing and matching all sorts of cultural appropriations. Culture, that, that's such a funny, uh, we'll talk about this later. later, another topic for another time. We're talking food here. Um, but yeah, so this particular rice seasoning gimmick, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation because I'm an appropriator here and I don't know how to speak Japanese, but this is wakame chazuki, wakame chazuki rice seasoning. Uh, 
so this, the ingredients for this particular one, and I'm mentioning this particular one because of all the various rice seasonings I've tried so far, this is hands down my favorite. Um, this consists of seaweed, salt, rice balls, which we'll get into. Ooh, it's got monosodium glutamate. Shh, I think that's MSG, don't tell anyone. Sugar, disodium ribonucleotide, disodium succinate, and malic acid. And I'm uh, butchering those, not even because they're Japanese words, those are... Uh, like English science terms. So there's all kinds of alchemy in this magical thing. But the, th the, the kicker here, the kicker with uh, this wakame chizuki, I'm not realizing the kicker is probably the MSG. That's what makes it so uh, wonderful. But um, no, it's these rice balls because this is like, this seasoning has like the standard dry seaweed seasoning that you'll get out of most of these Japanese rice seasoning gimmicks. But these rice balls are these little crunchy beads of deliciousness that just adds such an amazing crunchy, crispy texture to your daily morning rice offering. Something that as an Asian American person is uh, um, near and dear to my heart. Even if I am going to mix and match, get all pan Asian, the, the rice is the constant. Rice is the constant across, across those cultures. You know, I have a friend out there, um, a friend Dan Z. And Dan Z feels that he is saving time by uh, eating when he, he prepares a dish with rice as a bed, um, he uses like Uncle Ben's microwave rice, which is like horrifies every uh, cultural bone in my body because rice is one of those things in Asian food that is uh, so simple that it's not there, but because it's so simple that it's not there, it needs to, to be held to a certain standard. And using microwave rice, I mean, that's like eating instant mashed potatoes. I don't know. I don't get it. I, it's, it's, a, it's abhorrent to me. He thinks he's saving time. I don't know how 20 minutes in the rice cooker is worth uh, blaspheming an entire cultural, culinary, continental tradition, but to each their own, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, so uh, props to this rice gimmick. Um, just a uh, Switching back gears to talk about what I was going to say about this cultural appropriation thing. Why is our, our our national culture so absolutely bizarre that there's just no room for nuance, no room for reason. One is either a canceller or an anti-canceller. One is either uh, just pure, every instance of just horrific racism and anti-social, anti-human behavior needs to be lauded and is acceptable, or anything that's even slightly uncomfortable needs to be eradicated. They're, they're just, the, the idea of, of, of a middle ground existing, I guess, as I've said before on the show, is just a bridge too far, too much to ask. But I say this, when it comes to this idea of cultural appropriation, this is a big deal here in Northern California, and I apologize, I don't know, maybe those of you out in middle America have never heard of such a thing. But here, it's this idea that one needs to be on guard. Um, you're not allowed to veer out of your lane culturally. Now, I understand the, the kind of well-intended um, reasons behind this because it originally, I think, arose as an idea to combat just kind of really obnoxious stuff. Like, th there's absolutely no need for, like, a white person to do blackface. I mean, that's just so weird. I don't know why you'd want to do that. There's no need for, like, non... Uh, Mexican-American people to wear some, like, gimmick sombreros and be like, ole! <laughs> I, that, that kind of stuff's played. That, that's, that's some 20th century 
stuff that's best left in the past, but people are so rigid and so uh, literal and so unimaginative about everything that it starts to extend to like um, that, you know, a Chinese American person shouldn't put Japanese rice seasoning on their rice. A uh, 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 non-white person can't appreciate uh, Norman Rockwell. Uh, and to me, it's sad because honestly, and I, I said this earlier, and I'm totally serious about this, the absolute best thing about the United States of America, what, what I literally believe makes it unequivocally the best country going, it's got plenty of problems, but the one thing that cannot be replicated really anywhere else in the world is this insane mashup of cultures. Um, just that th th there is no ethnic American. Um, there is no monocultural American. Everyone comes from a mashup of places. There's influences everywhere. And if we allow ourselves to embrace that and accept that, that's what brings people here. That's what's such a, such a great place about this country. When we uh, refuse to accept it by either, you know, on one hand, like the mutants who think that like only uh, the most Anglo-European iteration of American is, is really America. I mean, that, that's, that's absurd nonsense. But then on the, on the extreme other polar side, you have these people just policing everyone to stay in their own cultural lane. And for heaven forbid, you try to, to express yourself in any individualistic or unique way because you might offend people. That's also problematic. And that takes us away from what's so great about the good old U.S. of A. USA, USA. So anyway, I'm going to keep putting Japanese rice seasoning on my rice in the morning and you will pry non-instant microwave rice out of my cold dead hands. Is that like the, maybe that's like the eighth amendment. I don't know. USA. Folks, it's time for a little bit more food talk. You didn't think I was done, did you? Um, let's rewind it a ways back. Let's rewind it, so about 40 years back, to the childhood of Mr. Sensational Gino Vega. Uh, now, I, got, I have to be clear, because, you know, I can, I can uh, turn this into more of a parody, more of a caricature uh, than it actually was. And um, I joke sometimes about that my parents did sort of uh, fascist uh, hippie 70s parenting when it came to uh, what I was allowed to consume um, as far as delectable foodstuffs go. Um, now, to be clear, my parents were not by any means... Across the board, 100% anti-sugar, anti-artificial, this or that, joy kills. They were not. I, I would be, be over-exaggerating if I insinuated such. But they did, in particular my mother, have inclinations towards at least making a nod toward healthy eating. And my mom's idea of healthy eating dovetailed much more with what's considered a healthy now, in 2021, than it did what was considered healthy in, let's say, 1981. So certain iconic 
Americana food items that many children my age possibly were able to take for granted in their childhood. Um, things like the Hostess line of products, the Dolly Madison line of products. Those kind of things were few and far between in a sensational childhood. Um, I was allowed to pick out one Hostess snack during uh, the one or two times a year in my elementary school that we would go on a field trip and have to bring a bag lunch. I was, for that special occasion, allowed to go full Hostess. And to be fair, um, the Hostess products, when I had them, never really lived up to my expectations, but I do think part of that was just because they, it, the expectations were so high they could not possibly live up to them. Uh, the few times that I did get my hand on the Dolly Madison line of uh, snacks, these were the, the snacks that, if I remember correctly, were advertised during uh, Peanuts, uh, Charlie Brown holiday specials. Those were actually really good. Those like, weird, what are they, snowballs or something? Uh, those I found to be particularly compelling. But I feel like they weren't around as much, not even just because of my, my mother um, creating an obstacle for me to get them. I, I don't think they were as available in our market area. But along the line of these kinds of Americana foodstuffs, uh, the food items that were incredibly forbidden to me, even more so than Hostess and that line of suspects, were, were I can't speak, I'm sure of it, were... Uh, American children's breakfast cereals. I was allowed Cheerios and I was allowed Grape Nuts. And that was about the extent of it. I was not allowed all of the various compelling cereals that I saw advertised on television every day after school, every Saturday morning. Your Trixes, your Fruit Loops, your uh, Cocoa Pebbles, your Fruity Pebbles, your Apple Jacks, uh, your Captain Crunch, your Frosted Flakes, so on and so forth. These were out of reach for me because they weren't the kind of thing. My mom was just kind of like, why would you eat something like that for, for breakfast? That's the, the, why would you have candy first thing in the morning? So there was never even like a special occasion. Uh, where these things were available to me. Scratch that, there were a few. We'll get to that. But in any case, I have very limited experience, very limited knowledge, even as an adult, of iconic American children's breakfast cereals. Because it's one of those kind of things that because I didn't grow up with it as a child, it never really even occurred to me to dabble in them later on as an adult when I controlled my own fate, controlled my own destiny at the dinner table. Um... And to be fair, there were a few times when I was young that I did get my hands on a few kernels, a few pieces of children's breakfast cereal, and I didn't find them to be that appealing once I tried them. But when I think back, you know, the context wasn't right. I remember one time in early elementary school, possibly, I think this was possibly first grade, we were doing some sort of counting project in math. And for this project, we used uh, pieces of Trix cereal. We're each given a little Dixie paper cup of Trix cereal. And uh, 
we used these pieces of trick serial to add, subtract, probably just add and subtract. I think this was so early on we weren't even we weren't even getting to big boy stuff, big kid stuff like uh, multiplication or division yet. Thank God, uh, because I have a hard enough time getting my way out of uh, addition and subtraction. But um, so we had these little pieces of trick serial, and it occurred to me this was my chance. I should just go ahead and eat them. So somewhere along the line, I ate. My, my counting props. I ate my pieces of tricks. And I didn't find them to be particularly appealing. But see, I think what the problem was is I was expecting something more of the long, along the lines of straight-up candy. So when I tasted this sort of flavored wheat puff, sans milk, outside of the breakfast context, it didn't really do for me what I thought it was going to, and so I took it as being bad. And that added to my disinterest in the cereal. Disinterest isn't fair to say, because I was still very interested by way of the commercials that I would see, as we'll, as we'll talk about. But again, there was a part of me that was like, well, this stuff isn't really that good. So even as an adult, this is why I didn't revisit it until now. Um, the couple of other times that I did encounter um, a sugary children's cereal, there were a few times... Uh, I think, oh yeah, okay, so there was at least one time on a family trip where we, had a, we, were, where we were at a diner, and the diner served little um, sample size kids' boxes of various cereals, and I was allowed to get um, Rice Krispies, Snap, Crackle, Pop, and I thought that they were actually speaking to me from inside the box because I thought that's what the whole gimmick was from the commercials I saw, so I was listening and I thought that that Snap, Crackle, Pop sound was their little elfish voices talking to me, we had a little conversation there. At the diner counter in Anywhere USA as we drove through on the interstate. So that was one time. Another time, similar with the sample size boxes. Um, pardon me, taking a, a sip of lime-flavored sparkling water. Um, I visited my dad's uh, parents. When it comes to grandparents, my mom's grandparents were the more influential ones in our family, and I think I've talked about them before, and we'll talk about them again at some point. Those are, those are the Chinese grandparents, uh, the Chinese gangster grandparents. Um, but these were my dad's decidedly not Chinese parents. These were my dad's, uh, as, as my dad always joked, uh, they, they were wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, white Midwestern Republicans who came out to Southern California at some point and uh, moved the line out here. But uh, my dad's parents were like quintessential uh, 1950s people, even though it was the 80s at this time. They're, they predated the, uh, the 50s, but I, like, I think that they were in their super adult peak, the late 40s, early 50s. So they lived in a mobile home in Atascadero, California, but the interior of this mobile home looked like Don Draper's apartment in Mad Men. It had all this kind of like dark wood um, furniture. It had all that real classic Americana. Like, you know, they had their, their breakfast nook, but then they had a formal dining area, but then they had a straight up like bar area where there was a fully stocked bar, even though I don't think they really drank. But my dad always told me, oh, when they were younger, they'd entertain people. You know, it was just customary that even if you weren't a big drinker, you would have all the alcohol on hand, ashtrays, all that, all nine yards, looking very mad men. Um, my uh, dad's dad was um, 
an engineer for Westinghouse. Shout out to engineer nerd. See, I got some engineer. Well, actually, I don't have some engineer blood in me because uh, he was my dad's adopted father. That explains it. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, he was an engineer for Westinghouse and he had all this 1950s businessman stuff. Like he had a, he had a straight up uh, letter opener. Like this like wooden little, not knife, but this wooden wooden blade that you'd use to open an envelope without tearing it. And the, the handle of it was a businessman, like a wooden carved businessman. Um, a lot of cool artifacts like that. They always had a, um, a jar of planter's peanuts on the, uh, the living room coffee table with these little silver plates that you could, you could apportion yourself out. Some peanuts. Um, but where was I? Oh, so among the, the, the well-stocked things that they had is um, they always had children's... No, okay, they, scratch that. They didn't always have children's breakfast cereal. This was a strange one-off. They had grape nuts. That's where I got the grape nuts because they too were um, into healthy living. My dad's mother was a home ec teacher. So she was, she was hip to all this joy kill health stuff even before it was anywhere near the mainstream. But coming at it from a different angle than my hippie parents, they were coming from these like Republican 50s people. But coming at it nonetheless, coming at it as joy, joylessly and as soullessly as anyone and everyone comes to health food. Uh, so they ate grape nuts because I think it was I had fiber for increased regularity or something. But this one time, this one time that I visited them, I would usually eat grape nuts when I went over there as a kid. This one time they had um, a package of those sample size cereals and uh, I was able to partake. And I think, again, I chose the Rice Krispies because I, I, I it was high time, high time. I have another conversation with my friends, Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Um, in any case... Very limited experience with these cereals. But I was always incredibly intrigued by the advertising, the characters, the colors. There, there was so much like uh, mythology and uh, continuity in those campaigns back in the day too because you were dealing with these eternal struggles. Like the eternal struggle of the leprechaun uh, not being given access to the Lucky Charms or the, the eternal struggle of the Trix Rabbit the, the trick cereal being only for kids. These commercials maddened me as I was a child because I thought maybe, maybe at some point, one of these poor, suffering mascots will get their hands on the promised land or the promised bull as it were. And I watched and I watched and it never happened. And I could, I could identify with this because I, these things were out of my reach too. And folks, I have kind of a personal mythology, um, a personal icon that I relate to. And I'm realizing now that it was on, on display in these commercials as well. But when I was a kid, I was very taken with the Arthurian cycle, the, the King Arthur mythology. I had several, several King Arthur books. Um, some that were just, uh, I had like those Howard Pyle, uh, King Arthur, Sir Lancelot books that were the actual stories. But then I had a few, I had some time life, uh, series of hardcover books about like fantasy and mythology. And one of the volumes was all about uh, the Arthurian cycle. And so this book was more, it, it was less the, the strip stories, more like a, a breakdown of the various myths, the various tales, the histories. And I would pour over this book. And the character that I identified more with than all the other characters, the one that was the nearest and dearest to my heart, the, the knight of the round table that I claimed was Sir Lancelot. And the thing that fascinated me about Sir Lancelot is that he was far and away the best of the knights as far as being the most compelling, 
as far as being the most interesting, but he was also the most inherently flawed uh, due to his uh, amoral carings on with Queen Guinevere. And this flaw stained him. This flaw marked him to the point that when the knights went off on the quest for the proverbial Holy Grail, the chalice that held the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was crucified, um, when the knights went off searching for the Grail, Lancelot, of course, was the first one to find it. But Lancelot was barred entry into the chapel where the Grail lay by an angel. And there's a, this like medieval woodcut of him sitting out in front of the, the chapel looking bummed and this angel with the two fingers up, you know, looking all foreboding and not letting him in. Instead, his perfect son, Galahad, who was so perfect that he wasn't even real, was the one, the second one to find it, the one that was gained entry, and he was basically vaporized, pulled up into the heavens because he wasn't a real human being anyway. In, in any case, folks, I, this, this story stuck with me over the years because I feel uh, we all can relate to Lancelot because we all have those struggles, we all have those imperfections that we allow us to think um, bar us from our own promised land, but really the only thing that is barring us is our own belief that we are barred or something like that. So along these lines that occurred to me recently, uh, I was talking to my kids and we were talking about sugary cereals and we were talking about commercials and I was quizzing them on how many of the commercials, how many of the mascots, how many of the characters still exist to this day, how many are they, are they familiar with? And it's a very different landscape and a very different world because the youth don't really watch TV in the way that they did when I was young and they don't see commercials in the same uniform way, but they were familiar with some of them. Um, but again, it got me bouncing back to my memories and just how, how monumental a part in my imaginal landscape the cereal commercials played, despite my not even eating the cereal. I think I, I was taken with how each of the monster cereals, like the Frankenberry and the Choco, what's it, and the Boo Ghost Blueberry Guy, I loved how each each one was his own character with his own strength. Um, it's kind of like when you pick uh, uh, characters in an old fighting game like Street Fighter. You know, one one is the the uh, Muay Thai guy, one's the boxer guy, one's the wrestler. Same with the the, the fruit chocolate berry monster cereal guys. Uh, each coming at it from his own particular angle, his own strength. Another one that fascinated me in the day was Captain Crunch. Do you all remember when Captain Crunch went missing? And Captain Crunch was trying to send his uh, send his faithful followers, send his adherents secret messages for them to decode. Uh, you could send in proofs of purchase from the boxes to Scarsdale, New York, and you would get these various messages to decode. And I think he was ultimately he'd been captured by some robot-looking fool, and the TV commercials would have clues in them. I desperately wanted to be in on this storyline, but since I was not a purchaser of Captain Crunch cereal, I didn't have a cereal box with which to work from. So instead, I created my own uh, messages from Captain Crunch that I decoded myself, even though I was the one that coded them and created my own story and mythology of the disappearance of Captain Crunch, which I'm just now remembering. I, I have to look that up and see what the actual real story was. Um, but in any case, with sugary children's cereal on my mind, with all of these uh, larger-than-life adorable mascots in mind with the fact that I am a middle-aged man now who gosh darn it can do what he wants eat what he wants uh aside from going outside without being mandated to wear a mask 
still have other freedoms, gosh darn it. And one of those is marching myself down to the store and purchasing sugary children's cereal. And, you know, the um, part of my whole hang-up with this stuff is I love those little adorable um, sample size boxes just because of that memory from my grandparents' house and my memory from the diner. So, uh, you know... I am a middle-aged man who could march down to the store, but I didn't. I just mentioned to Ms. S that uh, uh, I was interested in trying some sample-sized sugary cereal, and the kids were also kind of fist-pumping about it and wanted to try some. And uh, not to sound like Archie Bunker, because I feel like sometimes I do on this show because I'm making it sound like I'm just sitting here at home and Ms. S is out doing all these errands. The thing is, folks, I do 99% of the domestic duties in our household. A couple of things I do not do. I do not generally cook. I mean, I make my salmon in the morning, but I, I am not the meal preparer just because Ms. S is infinitely better at it than I and enjoys doing it. And I don't procure groceries because again, Ms. S is infinitely better at it than I and enjoys doing it. So anyway, she went out shopping. She returned with two uh, sample size variety packs of children's sugary cereals. The problem is I was kind of um, picturing it as being like me and the kids would all equally share they took it as, well, there's two sample packs. We each get one, and you can pick one box of each of ours. So that's where we're at. I have thus far had a box of Frosted Flakes cereal from 16-year-old uh, Miss 2. And I have had a box of Apple Jacks from 12-year-old... I think I said 16-year-old Miss 2. 16-year-old Miss 1, 12-year-old Miss 2 gave me the Apple Jacks. Tried both, and both were, in their own way, phenomenal. I'm sure tastes may vary out there for people who have more of a refined palate for these cereals, but someone coming at it basically from 0 to 100, um, it all makes sense to me now, eating them with the milk, eating them in the breakfast context. Uh, I've gotten over that hang-up that I just thought it was weirdly sweetened puffed wheat, because it is. Um, but it works. Um, just kind of the glazed sweetness of the Frosted Flakes. I felt myself transforming into Tony the Tiger. I literally proclaimed, they're great! Um, Apple Jacks, Apple Jacks are funny. Does anyone like Apple Jacks? I, I feel like Apple Jacks are sort of the almond joy of these cereals because I, it's not like I've ever seen them in someone's home or ever heard someone claim Apple Jacks, but yet they persist. Yet they're still here. Yet they are still on the shelf. I didn't dislike Apple Jacks. I didn't dislike them. I'm going to say that. But I could see how they might be sort of the uh, dark horse of the cereal world. They might be lower on the sugary cereal uh, pantheon. Although I could be wrong. Maybe they're a smash hit and I just don't know it. Um, one funny thing about Apple Jacks, I remember them. I was trying to think about um, what I recalled of their advertising campaign and my youth, and I, I associated them with these kind of like stick figure children. And I looked back, and sure enough, in the 80s cereal boxes for Apple Jacks, there were these two stick uh, figure boy and girl drawn on the boxes. Nowadays, there's no logo. It looks like for a while there was this terrifying uh, campaign where they had like an anthropomorphized cinnamon stick and an anthropomorphized apple, but they were both very odd looking. Very odd. Not particularly appealing. Very, very early 2000s looking. So I think this was like past my past my uh, comfort zone of what a cereal mascot should look like. But folks, I wanted to report that I have scratched this itch. I have dipped a toe into the world of sugary cereals. I'm sure many of you have already been waiting uh, with them over your head for, for decades now. But for me, this is all new. This is all fun. I'll report back in as I try more. Suddenly, somehow, this show went off the rails. I intended to... Uh, 
do two little quick check-ins about food and then talk about spring break and talk about a trip to Eureka, California. I took many spring breaks ago. I'm going to have to talk about it next week because we're 35 minutes deep and the 35 minutes is that's when the, the, the vaudeville cane comes out for old MSGV here on the podcast. So I'm going to let you go. I'm glad to be back. It's always weird to take a week off and come back. Uh, sometimes I, I think maybe I maybe no one needs to hear Mr. Sensational. Maybe I, I, I start to become self-loathing that I'm doing too much running off of the mouth, especially when I take a week off. It's like maybe that was a week of, of bliss. Maybe that, that was sheer bliss for the tens of ones. But then I come back and I do it and I have a good time for the 35 minutes till the cane comes out. And the cane is out. The, the, folks, the cane's around my neck. I gotta go. We're out of time on the Mr. Sensational Chino Baker Podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. This was episode 36. Folks, I'll see you next time. Signing off. I have got a sweetie known as Susie. In the words of Shakespeare, she's a wow. Though all of you may know her too. I'd like to shout right now. If you knew Susie like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a girl. It's none so classy as this fair lassie. Oh, 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 my goodness, what a chassis. We went riding, she didn't walk. From the country, I'm the one that had to walk. If you knew Susie, like I know Susie.